Hey everybody, this is Mikey D. Welcome to my stoop. A long time ago, in a far-off corner of a major city, was a small American town called East Harlem. There were many faces, but no Facebook. A few twits, but no Twitter. And we didn't use a device when we wanted to socialize. We just opened the door and walked out to our stoop. It seems like such a long time ago, like an ancient city, a myth, as if it had watched it all from the stoops of Atlantis. Blood can be a funny thing. You scrape your knee as a kid and there may be a few smeared droplets. You watch your parents barbecue a steak and a little pool of the stuff will leak and drip onto the coals with those little sizzling poofs of smoke. You watch MASH on TV and Hawkeye has got a bit staining the whites of his surgical garbs. But then your dad cuts his finger washing a glass, snipping a juicy electric artery, and you watch as with each of his quickening heartbeats blasts of blood like from your water gun pulse from his finger to the height of the ceiling, or a towel drenched in the crimson stuff when your mom accidentally runs her arm through a window, slicing the veins in her forearm. It gets creepy fast. I mean, looking at multiple bags of your own blood stacked beside you as you make a donation can feel odd. But when it's spilled on linoleum, asphalt, or concrete, it gets real fast. East Harlem in the 70s could be a dangerous place, and it got worse in the 90s. During both those decades, plenty of blood spilled on sidewalks, and too many died. My brain is stained with some of those incidents. Then, there are times like some cheesy horror film playing out on your street, when blood has a fun side, a goofy side, a mischievous twinkle as it pulls on those hot stoops of Atlantis. Mid-June has always been my favorite time of year. It was a month that offered us that day of perfected bliss, the last day of school. Walking home along Pleasant Avenue with an endless summer of lazy days ahead, all was right in East Harlem. These would be the days of sweeping late, Barbecues, fireworks, backyard games, stoop ball, scullies, and yellow sunshine that smelled like cotton candy. I was floating home when I spotted a couple of the Avenue guys hanging out near the mailbox. These were the tough guys, around my age, but they played stickball, basketball, smoked, had real girlfriends, while me and my geek pals played cops and robbers, traded comic books, and climbed crabapple trees. Vinny Bagapasta and Joey Bombats were hovering over something on the sidewalk. It was a body. And not just anybody. It was one of my best friends, Scott. He had blood dripping from the corner of his mouth and his eyes were closed. I froze and Joey looked to me in a panic. Call an ambulance fast. This was 1975 or something, so ten-year-olds didn't have cell phones yet. I took off down the street but was frozen in my tracks by loud laughing. I turned. Scott was sitting up and chuckling. Vinny and Joey's dumb mouths were laughing even louder. Dumbasses, I mumbled. He didn't know it but the blood master of a honey teen had done it again. On a boring long summer day, we were always looking for entertainment. Asteroids and Pac-Man were still a few years away. We had to invent games. And when you created a game, it usually meant creating some mischief, so the hours of free time would pass at an acceptable pace. Scott and the two geniuses' trick was mean, but it was funny. And it was an idea. Maybe I could fool my sister. I headed back to the stoop to tell my friend Christopher what had happened. Rhyming Ralph was hanging around, as he often did, summer afternoons. 
Ralph was a sweet-natured man and kind of a big kid. He would hang around and make us laugh with the same old silly lines. What's so funny, Bugs Bunny stole your money? Or the classic, hey Mike, where's your bike? You should be riding a trike if you like. Don't go step on no spike. And we would laugh no matter how many times we cited them. Not sure why, but everything is funny when you're that age. The only things you have to be concerned with is what game is to be played next or what snack we would eat. So after I told Chris the story, I said, let's go get some vampire blood. What are we going to do with vampire blood, he would ask. We can trick Laura and Jennifer. We don't have any money. See, in those days, vampire blood went for a quarter or tube if you had a fake blood contact, knew where to go, what bells to ring, what passwords to say. You see, a quarter back then represented your candy money for the day. We were bored, but sacrificing Jolly Ranchers and Swedish Fish for a tube of fake blood, well, not something I was ready to jump into casually. So we needed a plan B. We needed a new source of income. If I went to my mother, too many questions would be asked, and the conversation would probably go something like this. Mom, what do you want? I need a quarter. For what? I want to get something. What do you want to get? Uh... Vampire blood. What? I want to get vampire blood. What do you want to get that crap for? It's fun. No. You never let me do anything. And I'd saunter back out like I'd been denied water after a month in the Sahara. I stepped back outside and Chris had the same expression. His mother was at work. And his grandmother, who lived on the second floor of my building, had the same feelings about vampire blood as my mother did. Ah, what do they know? We plopped onto the stoop and I glanced across the street. Our future victims were sitting on a shady stoop, just waiting to be pranked. Then I looked up the street and spotted a head of snow-white hair glowing in the sun. It's Grandma. She had the perfect Italian grandmother. Four-foot-nothing, snow-white hair, and even after eighty or so years in the States, she still spoke with the winds of Abruzzi, blowing through her words. She could be a tough old bird, or a cutie pie. She was sitting in a first-floor window purveying her kingdom, as she often did, and I had a devious plan. I waved for Chris to follow me towards my grandmother's building. Man, it's hot, I started the script. Chris smiled. He knew what to do. Man, I wish I could get an icy, he said. Yeah, lemon ice. That would be cool. We would need a quarter. Yeah, if we had a quarter, we can get two ten-cent ices. What a pathetic pair we were. I turned, and to my dismay, my grandmother was gone. My crest fell to the sidewalk with a thud. We were about to walk off and find new ways to cause havoc when I heard the soft squawk of my grandma's voice. Hey, she called to us. I turned and smiled as a disc of silver spun like a satellite towards my face. She still had an oomph in her throat. It bounced off my chest and tinkled to the sidewalk. I smiled and waved. She threw a second quarter. Go by ice cream, she ordered. Thanks. Whoa, 50 cents. We can get vampire blood and ices from Rex the Italian Ice Guy on First Avenue. We went over to Russ's building. He lived right next door to my grandmother. And he was our blood contact. He was the blood master of 118. We rushed up his stoop. We could hear drumming from the inside, but that was normal. He was in a real rock band. We sat on his doorbell until the drumming stopped. And after a moment, I heard barking. It was his dog Muggsy, a cute Boston Terrier who was his constant companion. I could hear the squeak of wood and the footsteps approaching. The lock unlatched, and Russ, looking slightly annoyed, stared down at us, his long dark hair hanging over his eyes. See, I thought he was cool because he was both a rock star and a geek. 
he had been my sister's boyfriend and was into all kinds of cool things like guitars, model making, photography, and he loved blowing things up too. A few years later, me, Scott, and my cousin Joe would help him demolish a large plastic model of R2-D2 with an M80, sending a blast of powdered plastic into the air like we'd blown up our own Death Star. And he was the peddler of blood. I'm not sure how it started or where he got it, but he seemed to have an endless supply of tubes of vampire blood. What's up? he asked. Muggsy was wagging his tail spastically at his feet. You have any vampire blood? I asked, holding out my quarter. He stared at the goofy smiles on me and Chris's faces. Pains in the asses. He rolled his eyes and closed the door as Muggsy followed. I looked at Chris and he had the same expression. Should we wait? Was he going to weave us at the top of the stoop when we went back inside to play drums? I listened. No drums. A minute later, we both jumped as the door was thrown open. A hand protruded out, holding the white and red plastic tube of liquid, deviant fun. Make it last. I don't have much left. Russell warned us as he closed the door. Yeah, right, Chris muttered. Russ had an endless supply. We imagined a special secret warehouse where cases upon cases of fake blood were stored. Probably trucks came in the middle of the night to fill any empty space where more tubes could be stored. Or maybe he was a vampire on the side and sucked the red juice from unknown victims, and this was actually real blood. It didn't matter. We had our blood. Now we needed to plan our prank. We needed something dramatic. 70s styles dramatic. The undisputed king of motorcycle daredevils is Evil Knievel. For three decades, the entire world was a witness of his success or failure. His most one of the cultural stuff. heroes of the time was Evil Knievel. Every kid knew at least one other friend who had that wind-up Evil Knievel motorcycle and would set it flying over all sorts of obstacles with homemade ramps. Fireworks always made it even more fun. But in East Harlem, that grew dull quick. We had our own bikes. We aimed to be the evil one and put our own life and limb on the line in the name of fame, fortune, and fun. We just needed an old wooden board and a few bricks to construct a ramp. There were scraps of wood in my yard, but none really work as a ramp. There were, however, plenty of bricks. For the wood, we would have to venture into the dark dungeon of my cellar. That in itself was an adventure. It was a musty, smelly, dingy, dusty couple of rooms filled with tools, boxes of knickknacks, scraps of plasterboard, screens, parts of gates and possibly wood to make a ramp. And, of course, as in any New York City basement, there were water bugs. People who moved to New York from around the country like to call them big roaches. No, my Ashkashian brothers and sisters, roaches are roaches and water bugs are water bugs. Big roaches are just that, big roaches. Water bugs are armor-coated grossness with the horrible possibility of flight. I hated the staircase that went down from the kitchen to our basement. It was unlit and narrow. It was like a gauntlet you had to run to get down the 13 creaky wooden steps. You always felt you were running through an audience of water bugs that were chuckling and contemplating flying right into your face. We took deep breaths and raced down. Chris and I made it to the bottom of the steps without incident and scanned the lowly lit room before us. There was a door that led to a small boiler room. Inside the old water boiler hummed softly like a dragon in its den, spending most summer days asleep as the city was baking. What about that? Chris pointed to a piece of sheetrock. You can't make a ramp with sheetrock. It'll crack. No dummy behind it. Oh, I didn't even notice that. It was a perfect sheet of heavy-duty pressed wood. It was heavy. We each took an end and headed back upstairs and outside. It was nice to be back under the blue skies and breathing sweet air. Our plan was pretty simple. We would set up the ramp, and as we had done a thousand times, ride our bikes at top speed, 
hit the ramp, and get launched 600 feet in the air. We would then spin out with brakes squealing. I would slip the tube of blood from my pocket and squirt it on my face and arms. Then the screams and fun would begin. We quickly set the ramp up in front of my building. We were in luck as Laura and Jennifer had moved back to my side of the street and were sitting on the stoop. We wanted them to be close witnesses to the gore-filled accident about to happen. It was getting close to lunchtime and my mother was making my favorite, little pizzas made with English muffins. We needed to pull off our plan, then we could eat. Our bikes were old and beat up from racing them around the sidewalks, jumping ramps and spinning out by slamming on the rear brakes. The tires were bald. Helmets? I don't even think we knew such things existed for kids on bikes. So this is how it would go down. I would hide the tube of vampire blood near the curb, a few feet from the ramp. Me and Chris would race from the corner, hit the ramp, spin out in a great collision. I'd swipe the tube from the curb, squeeze some red gore on our faces, then reveal the horror to our sisters. No doubt would go screaming off down the street like Jason was chasing them with an axe. I swept the tube of blood in the street between the tire of a parked car and a steel band of the curb. I whispered to Chris, so let's do it that way. He smiled and nodded. We mounted our bikes and raced each other to the corner again. When we got to the corner, I noticed John the mechanic was turning on the fire hydrant. John was my dad's friend and owned a garage on the block. He was always covered in a perpetual layer of grease. He was a pretty nice guy, and he was my friend Scott's uncle. Sometimes he'd let us play in his garage, giving us rides on the giant mechanical jack. And as Chris and I ready to race ourselves into the history books of urban horror, a real scare shook me. The hydrant was on, full blast. That freezing river of bubbly, greasy water was racing along the curb where my tube of precious Type Z negative was hidden. The blood, I yelled. The race was on. It was us against the New York water supply, and man, she was a fast bugger. I pumped my pedals. I can hear the rusty chain of Chris's bike beside me struggling to hold together. The ramp was getting closer. I gave it every unit of energy that the last handful of Jolly Ranchers had provided. Then my wheel touched the ramp. There was a strange glass-like crack. The ramp collapsed as shards of glass spread out around the flattened wood and scattering bricks. My rear tire spun out and I was down on the sidewalk. Chris's bike was second behind. I heard the squeal of brakes. Human memory is a weird thing. I may be fantasizing my recall, but I could see him flying ten feet over my head as he tucked and landed in a well-executed roll. His bike sliding and scraping, a trail of brilliant sparks adding just the right touch of dramatics. I crawled to the curb to save the vampire blood, but the spray of water greeted me. My tube was somewhere down by 401, closing in on the great sewer falls of First Avenue. It's gone. I looked at the mess of wood, bike parts, and glass before us. That heavy sheet of pressed board had, in fact, been a mirror. So dirty and grimy, we never even noticed the glass. I stood up. My arm was wet and warm. There was blood, real blood, dripping from a small cut on my forearm. Chris stood, his blue jean shorts torn, and on his bare knee dripped that same red liquid. We turned to our sisters with puppy dog faces, hoping for sympathy rather than horror. Eyes rolled. That was never good. Grow up, Jennifer mumbled. Laura rolled her eyes again. Boys. They got up and wandered off the pleasant market for some sodas. Me and Chris looked at each other just a second. I smelled pizzas. It was lunchtime, and we had all afternoon to find new ways to pass another glorious summer day in paradise. First, we needed a couple of band-aids. This has been the Stoops of Atlantis with Mikey D. Stay tuned for future tales and bizarreness. 
from that ancient land called East Harlem. Check me out on Facebook.